A good Monday to you on this September 13th. You're tuned into Real Talk. Thanks for downloading the show. Thanks for being here live if you are. Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks. This show is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. This is the definitive source for credible, safe Bitcoin transactions in Canada. Bitcoin Well is Canada's first, as a matter of fact, the world's first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company, proudly based out of Edmonton. New headquarters, by the way. They're moving in later this year on Edmonton's famed Jasper Avenue as that team continues to grow their Bitcoin ATMs all the way across the country. You can learn more about them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Big show on this Monday morning. We know a lot's happened over the weekend, including uh, some some pretty troubling developments with a, a longtime uh, friend of this show. As a matter of fact, Dr. Darren Markland was with us. I, th- I think it was uh, show number two when he joined us in studio. Sam, we had we had two shows where we were we were able to welcome people he, he is, into studio. Our the, first lead off was Edmonton's Mayor Don Iveson. Our first interview ever in the history of the show in studio. Day number two, Darren Markland was with us. And, and then, of course, with everybody else based on COVID, we shut her down and went virtual, too. That's correct. Yes, he is one of he is he's, he's part of the famed group of, of uh, I want to say list. three. It's yeah. three people that have ever been in studio with us. And yeah, that's, that's it. Right. So three people we're hoping have to have here. more soon. Like, yeah, God, soon. I can't wait to have guests Looking in studio. Looking forward to it. Sarah Hoyles, you've never been able to experience this with the, the buzz and the hubbub of a studio. I mean, obviously filled with us. But with guests, we envisioned when we first built this thing to have a table, like a round table of conversation happening all the time. So Dr. Markland sat in the chair you sat at. You're sitting in right now. And he talked to us uh, show number two here on Real Talk at that point. That would have been November 24th. And he was talking about what would that have been? I guess, guys, the second wave of COVID would that have been probably, I guess we kind of lose track now. I've lost count. Yeah. I mean, right. And you kind of go, regardless, they have continued to fight the good fight, the, the ICU nurses and doctors. Doctors and, and those in ERs and the respiratory techs and the paramedics and everybody else uh, on the healthcare side of things through this fourth wave. Well, here's the deal. Cops show up at Dr. Markland's house. He'll tell us the story himself on Friday night. Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, you probably saw the photo. This this uh, police officer, uh, you know, strapped. He's got his his uh, sidearm there and he's got he's got some notes. He's taking notes and uh, confirms to Dr. Markland that that, uh, you know, police are following up on a death threat. And now physicians are, are receiving death threats. Uh, meantime, Markland and his team working at the Royal Alexandra Hospital as healthcare professionals work at hospitals across the country and quite frankly, around the world right now. And they're bracing for get this, as I put it over the weekend, another another parade of fools, uh, more protests expected outside Canadian hospitals today. I'm getting a little bit concerned, quite frankly, Real Talkers, and I'll be keeping an eye on the live chat. I'll be keeping an eye on our hashtag Real Talk RJ to see where you're at on this. But now I'm seeing news of counter protesters that are mobilizing and that are organizing. And all of this is just giving me this queasy feeling in my stomach that something bad is going to happen here. You're protesting outside hospitals we're going to talk to dr markland when he joins us on the show again that's coming up in about 25 minutes from now before that we'll talk to political strategist elise mills uh senior counsel with sussex 
strategy. She's got a ton of years of experience providing strategic counsel and a lot of Canada's top public affairs shows look to her for election analysis. We are one week out, if you can believe it. Next week, today, a week from now, next Monday, Canadians are going to be going to the polls. If you haven't already, I've seen people posting photos. They've got their I voted stickers. People have have taken advantage of advanced voting opportunities or mail in ballots, whatever the case may be. You can let us know if if that's the story with you. How did you feel this time around? How, How did you feel when you cast your ballot this time around? Was it an easier decision than last time? Was it a more difficult decision than last time? Were you were you annoyed to be voting this time around? We had an interesting response, as you know, from last week's question of the week. And we went through that uh, later last week and and got some interesting insight from you on on where you're landing on all of this. We'll get into the results of this week's question of the week a little bit later on in the show on the Alberta government's initiative to try to get people vaccinated. That one hundred dollar gift card, along with the 10 p.m. liquor curfew and everything else. More than a thousand of you, more than eleven hundred of you chimed in and, and let us know how you're feeling about COVID right now in this fourth wave and whether or not you have faith in government to manage this type of thing. We even polled you uh, on on what you think those $100 gift cards should be called. The $400 checks back in the early 2000s, of course, were Ralph's bucks. Everybody knows that. And we wanted to, to get the definitive answer, the one that will go down in history. And by that, we mean the one that will probably be entered on on Wikipedia later today by somebody citing the real talk question of the week, of course, presented by our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. It is official now and we'll be telling you we will be revealing what those one hundred dollar gift cards are officially called. Now, that's coming up later on in the show. A little bit of a hint, though, if you do support us on Patreon, and we're so grateful for those of you that do, you already know the answer because you've got the Patreon top line report in your email inbox waiting for you right now. All right. We'll talk politics in just a second. When Elise Mills joins us, I wanted to take a second to remind you that the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park have the all new pecan pie blizzard treat ready to rock. Crumbly brown sugar pie pieces, crunchy pecans, creamy caramel, the world famous soft serve topped with whipped topping, the perfect fall treat. They've also got their pumpkin pie blizzard treat. The pumpkin pie blizzard treat has real pumpkin pie chunks in there. Now, I did visit a Dairy Queen in Northwest Edmonton over the weekend, but I had to ignore those fall treats. For me, it was the monthly feature, the Kit Kat blizzard that was still there. And I thought, you know what? I've never tried one of those. So I did. It will not supplant my favorite blizzards yet, but it's already made its way into my top three. And a shout out to these Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Coming up this next Saturday, I'm going to be there for the check presentation. So proud of them, raising more than $22,000 for the Wakotawin Society. That's the society that provides retreats for Indigenous women that have survived residential schools and camps. are really proud of Dairy Queen for walking the walk on that one. Wanted to also remind you that our friends at Westworld Computers have a big sale on right now. If you're looking to upgrade your Mac or if you're looking to maybe pick up a new iPad, now's the time to do it with their Back to the Future School and Work Sale. A new Mac with Apple Care Plus at Westworld comes along with $100 to spend on accessories. A new iPad Pro with Apple Care Plus, like the one I'm using, $50 instant savings on accessories. And of course, you can save hundreds when you trade up from your current Mac or your current iPad at Westworld Computers online at Westworld.ca. 
as mentioned, one week out from the federal election. And of course, pundits are having a field day right now as these parties try to get in those last minute gains, try to capitalize on some of the trending and maybe try to ignore some of the polling that suggests that they're losing momentum. Among those keeping a keen eye on all of this is a senior counsel with Sussex Strategy, Elise Mills, a recognized commentator with a ton of national news organizations making her debut right here on Real Talk this morning. It's great to have you joining us. Thanks for making time. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a really nice introduction. Well, hey, we, we you know we do our best to make people feel welcome. You know, you're waking up, giving us a relatively early part of your morning on a Monday. We don't uh, take no. that for granted. Uh, what I are the? I started. I all for the last four days, Ryan. I have started my day at three a.m. What? Why are you starting your shows, day at three a.m.? Shows, 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 back to back, back to back. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, well, hey, Just listen. Wind me up, Brian. Well, and this, and you're among the thousands, right? That this is, you know, I, I hear people describe this. A lot of folks, uh, you know, commentators, strategists, analysts. Uh, that'll say this is this is our Super Bowl. You know, every two or every four years, you get to go through this election cycle. How how have you noted this one to be different than just a couple of years ago? You, you've obviously got Justin Trudeau looking to bump up the liberals from a minority to a majority government. You got a new leader with the conservatives. What's jumping out at you? It's meatier and it's crunchier. I mean, so two different two different ways of saying it. So since 2011, we really haven't had a policy focused campaign. I mean, in 2015, I think the liberals uh, put out an economic plan that was like three, four pages long. If that I might be overestimating there. And then in 2019, it felt like sort of this ambivalent Canadians were like, well, whatever. I don't I'm not so sure I care. This time around, we have Afghanistan, obviously COVID. We have issues uh, around Indigenous uh, relations and reconciliation. We have issues regarding how women um, are involved in our economy and our society. Um, I'd say they're pretty top line issues. It's starting to feel a lot like the early 90s in here now. I won't say this is the most policy driven, high level campaign I've ever worked on or been involved in, but I think we're rounding a corner. I think Canadians are going to get a lot more serious and it starts in this election and it's going to continue I think until we see some resolution around some pretty scary issues not just COVID uh, but I think the movement of people in regards to climate change and also in regards to uh, ever-changing governments in the southern hemisphere and also how climate change is affecting them as well. Just just out of curiosity, not to get us too off track, but what is the most policy driven campaign you've ever worked on? I would say that it was uh, in the middle 90s. Um, I was very young, of course, Ryan. I, yes. mean, I was just a wee girl. Yes. As a junior high student already working yeah. on campaigns. Yeah, exactly. Um, but 2011 definitely was the most combative campaign I've ever worked on. And you had... I mean, I like to see debates like what Tom Mulcair and Stephen Harper used to have or Jean Catin and Brian Mulrooney. I like heavy policy debates. I like it's either yes or it's no. It's not sort of the mushy middle. 
I mean, everything, I mean, I was too young to be on free trade uh, or Charlottetown or anything like that. Uh, but coming from BC, we're, we run pretty hot here. Um, and there's always some big policy discussions that happen, whether we're in the middle of a federal campaign, provincial or municipal campaign. Uh, but I would say 2011 in most recent history was where big ideas were put on the table. And it was sort of the architect uh, or sort of the plans forward, both economically and socially in this country. And I think that the country really changed at that point. It Canada kind of grew up. And then in 2015, they they I think Canadians had benefited economically and socially. And I think uh, they were feeling pretty good. And so they chose a feel good prime minister. And that's what we've been up to ever since. Elise, it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, describe this election as a little bit meatier than the last one, because we've seen a ton of people. It's not my line. I'm stealing it from someone, you know, that this is kind of the Seinfeld election that the Justin Trudeau tried to tell Canadians that this is going to be the most important election since essentially the 1940s. While at the same time, not everybody's convinced that, that there's even an impetus for an election. So so what is it that I mean, can you give us a couple examples where you say, no, 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 this is where it crossed that line into becoming an election of substance? I, I agree with you. I think the ballot box question, I never understood what the ballot box question was. I think also it was a minority government that was quite historical. It was working relatively well. I think obviously there's been frustrations brewing around how Mr. Trudeau and his government has managed uh, these very lofty commitments that they made in 2015 and how they seem to have fizzled out or stalled or being the absolute opposite uh, in action and behavior as promised. I mean, i.e. Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott, uh, uh, we charity and the list goes on and on. Um, but I, I'd say that what emerged and it's and I and the juxtaposition of Afghanistan falling and us abandoning our commitments there. That's how I interpret it, at least with him standing outside the governor general's uh, residence and dropping a writ. I with for no good reason. I think that set a chain of events off that began it got Canadians thinking maybe this is a bigger discussion we need to be having around, you know, Afghanistan, I think you can look at it through three or four lenses. Uh, you know, what it what is it to be Canadian uh, in, you know, in the global world? What is who are we on the on the international stage? Uh, I don't think we're the blue helmets that we associate with anymore. I don't I think it's a bit of a facade Well, it's, I think it's a total facade. And I mean, don't, no disrespect to um, the members of our military. That is not that is not to land at their doorstep. Uh, I think it lands very firmly with Justin Trudeau. And it was like when we looked for, we went for the security seat and country, certain leaders said, why do we need Canada anymore? You have dropped the ball on the things that we've asked you to do. You haven't shown up and we're not going to give you the reward of a security council seat. We're talking to political strategist Elise Mills with Sussex Strategy. I'm grateful you brought up Afghanistan. And hey, listen, from from one strategist, yourself, a political one, uh, to me, a storytelling strategist, they, they might say if we start going into Afghanistan and talk on foreign policy uh, at the top of an interview about an election, we might risk losing some audience members because numbers show even our polling, even our real talk question of the week. Uh, when more than a thousand people told us last week, three percent of them, Elise, 
said that foreign policy is a priority for them this election. Three percent. You know, we've had Stephen Hurley came on here a while ago and said Canadians don't care. Not that Canadians don't care about Afghanistan, but when it comes to election issues, they don't care about Afghanistan. Would you disagree? I, I don't know if I disagree or just suggest my how disappointed I am to hear that because foreign policy or foreign affairs uh, is no longer about shaking hands with the president of the United States or standing there at the UN looking pretty. It There are some very serious issues that threaten our democracy, threaten our economy, uh, threaten the way that the G7 and uh, other communities that we're involved in operate. Um, you stand for nothing, you fall for all was how I was raised. And, you know, if you, I, these are often the same people that will brag about Canada's, uh, what they identify with, how they see it, like the blue helmets and our involvement with the UN. Though That is actually the greatest mythology uh, in recent times, in recent history. That's not what we do anymore. And I don't know why we don't do it. Um, I look at how the government responded to uh, the Ukraine aircraft airline that was shot down by Iran. Uh, you know, those are that the majority of those people killed, including unborn babies, were Canadian citizens, a Canadian residents. And the I'm not so sure Canada cared as much as they should have. So these are important. Uh, here's another one, softwood lumber. We've gone without a softwood lumber deal. If Albertans don't think that affects them or the rest of the country, they are sorely mistaken. Um, and there's all these other things that have been lapsing for the last, since 2015, that matter so much to our daily lives. And that is foreign policy. That is foreign affairs. And it's under the subsection of trade export, all of that sort of stuff. And it matters. It really matters. I love interviews like this because you and I have, have have not had a meeting ahead of time and we don't have a specific list of talking points. And I didn't think we'd spend five or seven minutes on Afghanistan, but I want to ask you another question about it, if you don't mind. Then I'm going to ask you about Bill 21 and I'm going to ask you about, you know, COVID and we'll ask about the PPC. You can ask and a whole me anything, Ryan. I, I'm starting to get the sense I can ask you anything. And yeah. I am not attempting to get Canada off the hook here by any means. And I think you'll know what I'm getting at here but does canada go in so many ways as goes the united states in other words if president joe biden is intent on pulling american forces out of afghanistan is it even an option is it even realistic for for a canadian prime minister to say no nah, our work here is not done and we're going to stay well the only way that you can get to that relationship or that level of discussion or that respect is to have being respected in the first place, put the building blocks in place that demonstrate that you're very serious about these types of commitments. The work has to be put in. Joe Biden, I don't think has a lot of time for Mr. Trudeau. Look at the border issue. We're still not allowed to cross the border, right? And you can fly in, but you can't drive across. And for places like British Columbia and Alberta, that's important. Uh, Ontario, that's important. Um, I don't think Mr. Biden ha gives a, a lot of time or thought to Mr. Trudeau in the sense of his daily high level policy decisions. Um, that commitment about Afghanistan what was years in the making. What Canada should have done is a, is align itself with the United States and being participating in a plan instead of this chaotic evacuation where people were left hanging on planes as they were taking off or babies were being thrown by their parents to uh, American and Canadian and British military service people just to get health care treatments. I mean, it's abominable. 
what this is, this is should be, this is one of the biggest black eyes Canada has ever experienced and people should be furious about it. We wave the flags, we pretend we're patriotic, we get out there, we say that if you don't wear a poppy, you're not Canadian, you're not supporting the forces. It's so much more than that, Ryan, and Canadians are just not paying attention. Now, I, I just want to say this. I understand why Canadians may not be paying attention to the high level issues of like what, you know, the movements around Russia, the relationship Russia has with Iran and China, uh, the threats that China has made to us um, because COVID is heavy. And everybody's experiencing a heaviness and a weight in in different ways, but it all it all amounts to a, a level of frustration and fear. And I understand that home is where the head and the heart has to be, but I think the the for uh, the Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, the liberal leader, has taken advantage of that. Uh, Elise, I uh, I saw somebody over the weekend. It was a partisan comment. I wish I could remember who it was to, to give them credit. It, it, the person made it very clear that they're not desiring to see Aaron O'Toole as Canada's next prime minister because they made a comparison. They said, you know, you know, back when Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump, all we heard was Hillary's emails, Hillary's emails. And look what it got us. And then they compared the Hillary's emails thing to Jody Wilson-Raybould, now calling on Justin Trudeau to bring in the RCMP to essentially investigate uh, SNC-Lavalin, to remove the roadblocks to that longstanding inquiry into a possible obstruction of justice. Uh, Anime Paul, the Green Party leader, has also referenced this during the debate. What do you make of that comparison? What do you make of JWR's call? And, and how much of a role do you think it might play a week from today? Well, let's just start with the preface or the, the beginning of that that question, which is the calls on Twitter. So I just want to state uh, in absolute clarity, so nobody's confused how disgusted and shocked I am by men that identify as progressive, identify as liberal, big L or little L, who are in power positions, who have uh, written some what I believe to be racist, misogynist and threatening tweets. It's a witch hunt that's going on there. Um, and You're talking about aimed you, at Jody Wilson-Raybould? Aimed at Jody and her credibility. She is a very well-respected lawyer. Um, and I will say this. No publishing house will publish a book with those types of comments or accusations, whatever you want to call it, without covering their sixth, um, which is their rear end. <laughs> and, um, and Jody herself would lose her legal career and everything she's worked for if that book was not credible. The other thing I would suggest to liberals or those who are comparing this to Trump and Hillary, that is completely reducing the value of Jody Wilson-Raybould as a woman and as somebody that tried very hard to contribute positively to this country, whether you're a liberal or not. I'm a I'm a diehard conservative. You know this, Ryan. I have the greatest respect for her, and I'm familiar with her work because she's from British Columbia. I know her family. I've worked with um, members of her family in government relations and public policy, and, and I have a lot of respect. They have the respect of the community here. But I would say this, dear Mr. Trudeau, if you're so upset and you believe these to be lies as you are dancing on that excuse, then I would recommend, like my bosses, you know, three premiers, a prime minister, and a lot of U.S. politicians, I would say, go out there and respond legally. Take that legal action, because if she is out there saying the things that she's saying, then that's an issue of credibility, character, and um, 
and and your morals, quite frankly, your morals and your ethics. And I've seen politicians go after uh, outlets or or commentators much, much uh, harsher over what I would consider to be lesser things and have won. So I don't understand why he's not taking legal action. And I'll tell you, if he doesn't take legal action soon, uh, then I think that we can assume that he knows he doesn't have a leg to stand on in the courts. Sorry, Elise, I'm distracted by our live chat right now. I just feel like uh, some people are are, uh, are really pushing back that at your partisan conservative perspective. And I'm just going to remind everybody that that's why that's why you should subscribe to this show. That's why, because you are going to hear people that are partisan, liberal, conservative, ND and otherwise supporters, strategists and candidates. That's the whole point of a show like this it's actually driving me fucking crazy reading my live chat right now at least but i'd like to get back to our it's driving me absolutely nuts can i say this ryan i'm not i i'm a canadian i'm a woman i'm a mother i'm educated that all comes before that i'm no longer a rabid young conservative running around you know frothing at the mouth i you know i understand high level foreign policy i understand uh foreign affairs and i understand how all that knits together with the very issues that are confronting Canadians today. And I would ask those people to show me a little respect the way that I show them the same respect on Twitter by not responding to some of their tweets. Yeah, well, anyway, do you think that the do you think the JWR thing? I mean, the, the you know, Justin Trudeau survived Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott last election. Does anything yeah. change here? Well, the thing is, it's not finished. The investigation's not finished. There was an obstruction around the investigation into the obstruction of justice. Um, and so as Andrew Coyne pointed out, and I recommend everybody follow Andrew on Twitter, but as he pointed out yesterday, this is not a fait accompli because nothing has been finished. And um, I think that as you read Jody's book, you'll begin to understand sort of the the largeness of this issue and and also how nuanced it is. It's not just about one particular, it's not just one answer. It's a million questions come out of, of how she tells that story. And then it got me actually researching where did we actually leave off in the committee hearings and the investigation. And I thank Andrew for putting his tweets out because it was a breadcrumb trail for me to figure out where we left off. And where we left off was basically no conclusion on the big criminality of this, but the ethics commissioner did uh, sigh a rule, uh, made a judgment against Mr. Trudeau, which meant that they agreed that there was a conflict of interest there. But as you know, the ethics commissioner is is sort of you know a, like a preschool teacher, essentially no teeth, not a lot of power, and in this country, you really can't remove a leader or hold them to the same investigation as say a U.S. president. Uh, so I, I'm getting from you, you don't think it's good to be this is not gonna be a game changer when it comes to the election and no, I, i'm inclined I, to agree i don't think so otherwise i want to move on because i want to talk about way more things with you over the weekend aaron o'toole the conservative leader doubled down on his assessment that jason kenney's done a great job alberta's premier when it comes to COVID 19 that he's done a better job managing it than the federal government i don't know how you make that argument right now and alberta is an absolute disaster and jason kenney's the lowest polling premier in the country how much does jason kenney hurt aaron o'toole if aaron o'toole continues to reward jason kenney for his endorsement in the leadership race. Well, I'm disappointed and, and your live feed's going to love this. This is this is why you bring on 
you know, seasoned professionals versus rabid young conservatives or partisans. Hey, I brought on a rabid young conservative on Friday. I don't have anything against rabid young people from any background. That's kind of the whole point. You never know what you're going to get on this show. Actually, they are kind of funny. It reminds you of what you used to be. And you think, oh, thank God they didn't put me on TV then, huh? Um, But but I, I am disappointed that Aaron has decided to make that uh, comment. Um, I don't live in Alberta. I live in British Columbia, as everybody knows. But I can only talk to what I see. And you're absolutely right. I think it's an absolute disaster in Alberta. But it's also now becoming a disaster in Atlantic Canada, too. Look at how many schools are now closing and we're only week two of back to school. I think that we have a serious problem in this country that really just usurps any particular premier or any particular leader. They can only do the best or the worst job. But the main issue, the virus has outrun us every single time. And it's only doubling down uh, with the new variants. And Delta is extremely contagious. The one behind it, Lambert uh, variant, I believe, that I don't believe the vaccines uh, protect you well against that. But then, you know, we're in a generational uh, cycle with vaccines. But getting back to Kenny, um, I knew Jason Kenney on the Hill when he was uh, Minister of Immigration under Stephen Harper. That minister, that politician, I always had a lot of respect for. He was fantastic. I'm not sure what's going on with Jason Kenney in Alberta. And I don't know why Aaron O'Toole would instigate a conversation with Jason Kenney. I know that you want to stand with your friends, uh, but you have to, you can't be blind to all the mistakes and, and friendship doesn't mean that you agree and support everything. I mean, to be candid, uh, here's what I pick up from the people, uh, at least as a man of the people, the people with my finger on the pulse. <laughs> Uh, I'm hearing people say uh, Aaron O'Toole is kind of surprising me. He's kind of running a moderate campaign and he introduced climate policy and he's and he's and he's been very clear or at least reasonably clear about how he feels about women's reproductive rights and all of the things that people look for or look to when they're talking about a conservative leader. And at the same time, here he is saying that Jason Kennedy's done the best job, uh, way better job than the federal government, he says, on COVID-19. And then those same people rightfully say, really, like I was starting to consider maybe trusting you with the with the keys to the prime minister's office and then all of a sudden now your assessment is that kenny's doing the best job on COVID. i mean to me i'm not the strategist you are but that to me seems like a bit of a bonehead move to be honest i haven't read the quote so i if i had read the quote or heard the interview um i would be better able to assess that i i have to be honest about that um i agree mr o'toole and the conservatives have surprised me i was growing increasingly frustrated that this party hadn't moved forward since 2011 uh that it needed to shed its skin and refresh and i was very surprised happily surprised to see where the conservatives were going um on climate change women's rights i mean women's rights are human rights i mean i don't know why we're still having this debate um but there and and there's been i I really like the ei announcements from yesterday around you know uh, compassionate uh leave for women that have had miscarriages uh compassionate leave for um you know for increased compassionate leave for families that have lost a loved one. I think COVID has made conservatives like myself reevaluate who we need to be and what Canada Canadians need us to be. 
They need to rely on the good old stuff, like great economic managers. Uh, think about the financial crisis in 20, uh, 2008. Uh, Canada not only survived, but thrived to a large degree. And that's really important. But um, the issue around Mr. Kenny and COVID, um, I think this will always be Mr. O'Toole's Achilles heel until we completely filter out that one to two percent that should actually just be supporting Max Bernier. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's where we'll wrap is a question about Max Bernier, Elise. Uh, police over the weekend uh, charging a former, uh, I, I believe he was a, a riding association president, something like that, at, mm -hmm. at a local leadership level, a former uh, People's Party member, Shane Marshall, with assault with a weapon, uh, alleging that he was the one that tossed gravel at Justin Trudeau last week in London, Ontario. This is just one story over the weekend. Uh, another one, Maxine Bernier appearing at a, a, a church, as a matter of fact, just west of our studio in Spruce Grove, Alberta, a room just packed full of people, nobody wearing masks. And I know that folks have said, hey, hang on, religious gatherings have a mask exemption. I'm, I'm not sure that Max Bernier is a religious leader yet, maybe for some people, but is the PPC somewhat of a new normal i mean what do you make of the role that they may play in in some contested ridings and, and maybe the message that a party like this sends to canada what's your take on the ppc i think it's representative of what we've always seen is you know especially in western canada um you know i grew up in a time where you know my parents were social credit uh, people in British Columbia, but outside of that, there was always these fringe right groups and fringe left groups. I mean, if you were raised in BC, nothing really phases you when you see stuff like this. Uh, but then look at Jay Hill and his party. Um, I think we, we see it demonstrated or illustrated more often provincially, but I think the PPC's rise in popularity, and you have to give it to them. They're 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 rising, you know, about a half point uh, every week. So they're up to what six percent or something like that. I think that comes that could just be a COVID uh, response. I think there's a lot of people very frustrated. I think we've been cooped up too long. I th I'm not surprised to see anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, and maskers. We should not treat them like something that we need to be afraid of. We just let them be and let them go on. Don't antagonize them like the prime minister has and let Maxine Bernay deal with them. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm excited to see that one to 2% of our conservative movement move on to Max Bernay where they should always have been to begin with because the other hundreds of thousands of Canadians that will come to us when they leave is so much more valuable to me. Um, and, and, and not just, just, and, and, and when I say Canadians, I'm speaking about women. I'm speaking about ethnic minorities, religious minorities. I want to see a milieu of people in the Conservative Party. Otherwise, we cannot properly represent Canada. Okay, I asked. I have, I, I, I have to ask a follow up there because you, okay. I, I do agree with you. I, I do think that the Conservative Party stands to gain a significant number of supporters if it flushes mm -hmm. away uh, some of the nastier mm -hmm. elements. I'm curious to know what you mean by the Prime Minister antagonizing uh, anti-maskers. And let me ask you this: on the on the visible minority or the religious minority or or marginalized community front, Aaron O'Toole said that he won't touch Quebec's Bill 21, which I think has surprised some people, maybe disappointed some people. You think that's the right move considering the message it could send? Well, why are they surprised or disappointed? You've had a prime minister for four years who won't even, who just sort of circulates around Quebec, tiptoes around that issue and won't get into it. He says he doesn't support it, but he has not involved himself in it. And only recently since the English debate uh, where it really blew up, um, uh, we haven't really heard from Justin Trudeau about it. I, you know, it, 
under Stephen Harper, Quebec was identified as a, recognized as a nation. And uh, Quebec has many different, I, I lived in Quebec for a couple of years and it is totally foreign to the rest of the country. You have to experience it to understand it. Um, and I think that uh, Quebec, unfortunately, the way that this country works, Quebec has the right to, uh, it's, a, it's a nation, uh, much like in our indigenous uh, relationships, uh, you know, self-governance, uh, they're their own nations. Do I agree with it? Absolutely not. As a woman and as somebody who uh, has uh, a, a, a Jewish heritage, I definitely do not agree with it because I think it's a gateway to the, all the other awful things that my family or my friends and the Jewish community have had to experience and me as a woman. Um, those are all inter entwined. Um, but Aaron O'Toole is right to say what he's saying. I, I, people can dislike it, but there's the constitutional side to many different things here. It's like vaccine passports. Why do you think Justin Trudeau set, down, left that to the provinces to deal with? Why? Because the government lawyers understood that that was going to be a a hornet's nest constitutionally. The UK understood that. So they let, he, he decided no, and he, and he phrased it like, hey, province or provincial leaders, I trust you. You guys have got it. No, he chickened out and rightfully so because he knew it was going to but be. But hang on, if you're saying it's the, if you're saying it's the right decision, you can't say he chickened out. No, it, he, he, I say he chickened out because he actually came to the, came to the discussion like, you know, I was going to do it and I looked into it, but I decided provincial leaders are better at it. He didn't tell the truth. He didn't tell you exactly why. So therefore I call it chickening out. You know, you're either a leader or you're not. You got to go balls to the wall sometimes, Ryan. Not everyone's going to like you. And that's Mr. Trudeau's problem. He seems shocked that people don't like him. Elise Mills is a political strategist with Sussex Strategy. Really appreciate you making time for us today. Thanks for this. Thank Thanks, Ryan. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, you bet. Me too. We'll talk again. Uh, we're going to get to Dr. Darren Markland in just a second. We warned you this show is going to move fast. But quickly, I want to remind you that the Alberta Beef Roundup is back at Friesen Brothers right now. It started September 10th, just a few days ago. And it runs all the way through to the 23rd. You've got 10 more days to get your hands on an entire hip of fresh Alberta beef custom cut by your in-store butcher just the way your family likes it. So your order might look quite a bit different than your neighbor's order. Maybe you want more roast or steak. Maybe they want more stewing cubes or ground round. It's up to you. You choose how your in-store butcher prepares it custom cut and wrapped just for you. Come celebrate this tradition of Alberta Beef Roundup today with Friesen Brothers, 16 Alberta locations, Alberta grown, Alberta owned. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Eden Landscaping. They're prepping for the next phase of their calendar year. Of course, as soon as those leaves fall and, and then the snow starts to join the, you know, the, the landscape, that beautiful picturesque landscape. That's when the Eden Landscaping team starts working with partners, customers, with their clients, many of them return customers in the conceptual stages, bringing your outdoor space to life, your vision becoming reality. It's a one-stop shop. You don't have to hire a general contractor after you hire a landscape architect. This team handles it all and you can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Well, this next guest has been such a good friend to this show and has been a remarkable warrior for the people of Alberta and his role as an ICU physician, a critical care doctor, a nephrologist at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Edmonton. He had police knock on his door Friday night. 
which is right around the time he learned that he had been the subject of a death threat. Kind enough to join us this morning, Dr. Markland. I don't even know what to say anymore. How surprised were you when you got that knock on the door? I have to say, yeah, I was really surprised. Um, yeah, I was absolutely terrified. Uh, when I when I saw the officer, they were they were plainclothes officers, uh, and I looked. It was eleven o'clock at night. I looked through my my video camera and saw a man with a gun and a clipboard, and my son had already opened the door. Um, and the first thing I thought was my other son had gone out for the evening, and I was terrified. And I was getting you know, the proverbial call that he was dead. Darren, I, I don't even know. I mean, really, I, I just am going to treat this interview like we're pals because I'm just going to talk to to like uh, how I would ask a friend who is who is uh, experienced something as bone chilling as as this must be. Is this a first for you? I mean, is it have, is this marking a next level of what I know has already been a trying and exhausting and frustrating eighteen months? Well, the short answer is yes. Um, I've never experienced this before, uh, and. You know, I will say that um, I, I have a pretty good shield of privilege, right? I'm a white male. Uh, so uh, I'm kind of seeing what other people have gone through. Uh, and I'm learning. I'm learning um, just where we've gone through this um, and how hurt people are. What did it's, it's really none of our business. And I would imagine that you've probably been advised to not speak too much about it. But but would you tell us about the threat itself? Was it was it was it phoned into the hospital? I mean, how did the police hear about it before you? And, and where is that at right now? Well, I mean, I've agonized about actually talking about this um, and I've declined a lot of, uh, of press about it. I, it was one of these tweets that I, I initially put out there because I, I wanted people to know the human side of anger. Um, but yes, there is a risk to this. And um, so, you know, this, this is hard for me to talk about. Uh, I'm scared. I'm scared because this was RCMP and that elevates it to a different level. Uh, I'm also scared because when you ask about how these things are formed, they give you no information. You're effectively told to watch your back. Um, I'm an incredibly open person about who I am. I, I've always felt that my role of being honest and heartfelt was a way to connect with people who may not agree with me, but at least they can empathize enough to listen. Uh, we have narrowed the, we've lost our moderates. Uh, people who have turned have turned. Now the battle lines appear to be drawn. And I'm just struggling with how to help people because they don't see it as help. They see it as threat. And the response is no longer to consider things but to react. I get that. I see that all the time. That is exactly what I'm seeing now all in the intensive care unit. The empathy, the support that we saw during the other three waves has been replaced by confused anger because these were the people who honestly, like honestly to their heart, believe that this wasn't going to happen, that this is a hoax and that their anger because we are effectively right. And we take no comfort in that. Uh, that they, when you can't breathe, when you're drowning and it, it's breaking you because you truly believed in it, 
and they strike out. Well, you, I mean, you've been uh, the the candor that you have shown, and and you've taken us sort of behind the curtain on your Twitter account at Doctor Dagley over over the last year or two. Uh, with some remarkable stuff, there, there was there was a, a an account that you shared, a story that you shared without revealing who the patient was at some point last week where and, and I'm hoping you can tell our audience a little bit about it, respecting obviously what you need to respect. But uh, someone in the ICU that was uh, telling you they couldn't breathe eyes wide, they told you it was a bad reaction to antibiotics. And, and you told them that, no, in fact, it was covid. And they told you the the ICU doctor to go fuck yourself. And you told them that you're going to continue to provide good care. I mean, as an ICU doctor, I know that you're not going to limit your care to people that agree with science. I know that's not how you're wired. I'm not that that's not how any doctor or nurse is is wired. But I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. It's not so hard when you're there, right? Um, we're all empathetic when we're face to face. Yeah, I mean, people are scared. I, I deal with fear all the time. Um, to react, and I react all the time. Look, I mean, thank God for low res video. You, you'd, you'd see my face turn red and the veins pop out of my head. But um, humans are inherently empathetic. Uh, what, why people aren't now is because we've been separated. We've been separated on purpose. We've all become part of a political agenda. And we've allowed these ideas to foster for political and economic gain. Um, I think if you know, local leaders would take a stand um, and put themselves at some risk to either say that they believe in the science of vaccination or not. At least we'd have clear markers about why I'm seeing so many people coming from these areas of low vaccination. Um, but if you're not honest, if, if you have secondary gain out of this, which is to be successful in your office, you'll just grow this weed until you can't manage it anymore. I want to uh, play just a portion of some video that was uh, released over the weekend. This was video that was that was uh, appears to have been captured at uh, who I think was the health minister, Tyler Shandro's stampede gathering. It's Alberta's premier clearly speaking to someone who it's it's quite clear the premier doesn't know that he's being recorded. I'm not going to play the entire video, which is about two minutes, but I did want to play this and, and get you to respond to it. This is video from earlier in July. The voice you're going to hear is Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney. It's open for good. Open for good. Open for good. I don't want to go back to I swear, I swear to God. No, no. With the vaccines, we don't have to. But I mean, it's still not fully percent, like 100%. Nothing's 100%, but they're effective enough to keep people out of hospital. That's Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney. What's your response? Well, I don't think it's fair to record somebody who uh, doesn't know they're being recorded. I mean, it is legal. Uh, and uh, but let me just ask you, it's revealing with regards to, you know, the advice that the premier is getting and what he's been telling people. He, you know, he goes on to say that young people aren't going to be in the hospital. Vaccinated people aren't going to be in the hospital. It's not going to affect people under the age of 30. I mean, what does that do to a guy that's seeing people in the ICU every single day? Well, it's a death of, of, of bad messaging, right? Um, everything he says is, is right to a certain degree. Um, but the numbers, this numbers game is what's killing us. Um, 
uh, for two reasons, right? We get enough of this virus circulating, even vaccinated people get sick. Uh, it's kind of like walking through a hurricane with an umbrella. You can't, you know, 95% protection still has a 5% failure rate. So that's one problem. So this is not a disease of the unvaccinated. I have vaccinated people in the ICU. Ain't their fault. They're, they did everything right. Um, it's just, we are in a hurricane of Delta. Uh, the other thing is that... Um, I desperately want to believe what Kenny's saying. Um, part of the reason that I've tempered a lot of my words is there was, you know, back in my head, this desire that this summer was going to be good. Yeah. Um, but I knew it wasn't. Uh, and now we're really in trouble again. We're, we're really overwhelmed. I was on call last night. That's why I look so tired. And I literally, um, you know, despite the tremendous work of our health system to keep things running, was trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do with my next phone call because they're all coming from areas of low vaccination rates. These local leaders need to step up. Uh, they need to save us. I want to ask you about what's expected. I, I, I don't want to manifest it, but it's expected that today uh, we're going to see more of these what do you want to call them? Demonstrations outside hospitals in Canada, including outside your hospital, the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Edmonton. Over the weekend uh, on Saturday, you tweeted rumors of my hospital being targeted for another anti-vaccine protest on Monday, though I respect one's right to nonviolent protest. It is morally bankrupt to harass patients and their families who are likely going through some of the worst moments of their lives. Can you give us a sense of the impact that these demonstrations are having on the healthcare workers that are continuing to provide service? I heard somebody put it this way the other day, and I thought it was pretty bang on. They said you've got anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers outside the hospital, and you've got anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers inside the hospital. What impact is the demonstration having on you and your colleagues? It's devastating. Um, we're all pretty tired. I, I don't think I look well rested today. <laughs> Um, but what got us through the last three waves was this incredible support. Um, I mean, Albertans were fantastic. Um, but you're right. Um, we have now lost our moderates. And so everything that's coming in is the same story. And I think we have to purposely, as healthcare professional, not even ask about the vaccine um, so that we can get through our day and do the right things. Uh, because empathy has a quanta. Um, and we do our best to be empathetic. Um, and like I say, when you're looking at someone who's crying and swearing at you because, you know, there's this disconnect in their head, you can't help but feel bad for what got them there. But I just don't know how to reach out and connect. Uh, your medium is one of the, the mediums that tends to cross boundaries, right? This is, this is a, a bit of a risk for me, but uh, we are now in an extreme phase of disinformation and it's harmful. Doctor, uh, every time, every time you join us, uh, you display competence, class, empathy, brilliance, quite frankly. I'm so grateful. And I know I speak for thousands of people that we have professionals like you in our hospitals right now at a time of crisis when we need those qualities the most. I know you're exhausted for what it's worth. I don't think you look that bad today, but I want, but I want to thank you for joining us much love and mad respect, doctor. And we'll talk soon. Yeah. Be safe. Thanks. Yeah. That's intensive care physician, Dr. Darren Markland. 
you can find him. I, I encourage you. I implore you to follow him on Twitter at Dr. Dagley. That's D-A-G-L-Y. Uh, for more. On, and and uh, I mean, Sarah, I know that you've been keeping an eye on his Twitter as well. I mean, keeping an eye. It's like every time he tweets, you and I go take a look at it because he's sharing these stories without betraying a patient's trust. He never identifies his patients, obviously. But these stories are remarkable. In some cases, heartbreaking. You know who, who these doctors are seeing in the ICU and in other cases, infuriating. Right. People, people with with I don't want to say their last breath, but fighting for their last breaths, hoping that they'll be able to recover and get out of those ICUs still defiantly telling these healthcare professionals where to go and how to get there. It's hard to wrap your mind around it. I really appreciated the doctor's point, the idea that how did they get there? Like, what was it that took them to a place where they, they don't believe the science, they don't believe the warnings of medical professionals? I mean, to that point, our next guest is is definitely going to be able to you know, go down that rabbit hole. I'm curious to talk to Kalen Robertson, who's going to join us in just a moment. I mean, he's worked with like the who's who of the alt-right, producing videos for Lauren Southern and Tommy Robinson and Alex Jones. He's done work for Ezra Levant and Rebel Media. Uh, That coming up in just a moment. You know, it reminded me when Dr. Markland said, you know, well, essentially he implied they're not going to, they're not going to pick and choose who they, you know, give excellent care to, obviously, it goes without saying it. it's the same sort of thing. I don't know why this sort of metaphor or this comparison popped into my head, but it's like, you know, you'll have someone that, that would, you know, uh, you know, participate in a horrific crime, for example, uh, potentially attempt to blow themselves up or get in a shootout with police or get in a high speed car chase and crash their car and, and sustain horrific injuries. And, and those people will still and you might say, well, obviously, Jesperson, what's your point? Not obviously. These people will still receive care. And it's not just so they can stand trial. Medical professionals are there providing quality care for people, regardless of what got them into that circumstance. And I would imagine that would be really difficult for a lot of people. You know, you're providing medical care. I mean, to to have to take a certain element, you've got to compartmentalize, I think. And you just approach your job with such professionalism. But if you imagine the depth of the emotion that these professionals must feel let's be honest i mean unless you're one of the many nurses or doctors or respiratory techs or or whomever that that correspond with us most of you off the record which we always appreciate to talk at ryanjesperson.com but unless you're one of those professionals if you're if you're just somebody like me that's not walked a mile in scrubs and booties that that doesn't totally understand how exhausted these workers are. How can we possibly understand the depth of their frustration, of their angst, quite frankly, of their anger when it comes to the whole idea that COVID's a hoax, that that vaccines don't work, that this whole thing is all planned out at some sort of a government scheme. And wow, these people still wind up in ICUs taking up beds. I saw at the Red Deer Regional Hospital in central Alberta, shocking numbers over the weekend of where those ICUs are at with regards to capacity. People are saying, well, yeah, a friend of mine last night says to me, yeah, and like elective surgeries are being canceled. I said, not just elective surgeries, pal. How about some of these social media posts that have been making the rounds? If you're an engaged citizen on Twitter, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That fellow last week that tweeted a photo, a heartbreaking photo of his, was it a CT scan? I think it was. And, and it shows this brain tumor that to me looks to be, I don't know, the size of a tennis ball. His name is Eric Mulder. Eric Mulder. We have reached out to Eric. I'm, I, I don't 
I know that the media requests for Eric as soon as he posted that were just, you know, spiraling. Um, but someone like that, I mean, that's not, you know, when you think elective surgery, somebody might think like, you know, hair plugs, you know, a boob job. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking for some people, hip replacements for people that have been in pain for two years, people that have brain tumors because the hospital beds are being taken up because the, the medical professionals and the staff are being pushed to capacity. I can't under I can't even imagine, quite frankly, how pissed these doctors and nurses must be. But you wouldn't know it, would you? With a class act like Dr. Markland, you can be in touch with the show anytime. Always curious to know what you make of what and who you're hearing here on the show. Before we get to Kaylin Robertson, I'm expecting a great interview and a good conversation with him. I want to remind you that a lot of Canadians are going to be going back to school like everybody else this month but not in brick and mortar classrooms and not at your standard typical old school university campus they're signing up at canada's online university that's athabasca university with world-class accredited online programs and courses that fit what you're looking to do with your life and perhaps even more importantly they fit your schedule Check them out online today at AthabascaU.ca to learn more about the programs and courses, how the admissions process works, what current students have to say about their experience at AthabascaU, and of, of course, how it all plays out. Once you sign up, once you register, some of these programs, you can complete them in an afternoon. Some of them have obviously longer term courses. It would take you weeks or months. It all depends on what you're looking to accomplish. Athabasca University is Canada's online university. Also, big shout out to our friends at Grand Dog Essentials. We received another shipment right to our door last week for Moses and Monroe, our two dogs. They eat Grand Dog's quality raw food each and every day. What better endorsement can I provide you that we feed our family members this food? If you use the promo code REALTALK at granddog.ca, they'll give you 10% off your first time order. They deliver to Edmonton, Calgary, and Central Alberta on a weekly basis. You can tap into their frequently asked questions if you want to figure out if raw might be a good move for your beloved canine Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food. Our next guest is a a former correspondent uh, and producer for the alt-right who's who. As mentioned, Alex Jones, Ezra Levant, Tommy Robinson, Lauren Southern, and others. He's now uh, working with the new organization Future Freedom, a project designed to show people radicalized into far-right movements that there is a path out. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program, Kaylin Robertson. Thanks for making time for us today. Where are we talking to you from this morning, Kaylin? Where are you checking in from? So I'm based in London. That's where I work. That's where I've been for the last couple of years. You you uh, are pretty much a household name for anybody that's been following or or consuming alt-right news and productions uh, over the years. Why don't you give us just a general sense of, of how you got into media production and what it was that drew you to, to that extreme of the political spectrum? I mean, in 2016, I was already in film production, doing marketing, a fairly good job living in central London, you know, lots of friends, like a, like a you know, normal person. Uh, and I remember not really being engaged with news and politics very much like a lot of young people, even in the UK, especially before Brexit and Trump. It was, you know, no one was really that engaged around me unless you were in that field. Um, and I remember uh, sort of heightening stuff happening in the media with, you know, 
uh, Brexit happening, people talking about people like Nigel Farage. I hadn't heard of him, hadn't heard of any of these kind of names, hadn't obviously heard much about Trump. Um, but that was kind of all in the peripheral. Um, but I remember there was a really significant news story, uh, which was the Orlando shooting in um, in, in America. And it was you know, America's worst mass shooting at the time. It was committed by an Islamist. Um, and I remember that being completely shocking. I haven't heard of anything like that happening before and typed into YouTube, which is where I've always got news and commentary. I'd never watched TV or really read, read newspapers or grew up on the internet. Um, the Orlando shooting, I just typed in the words. And I remember all the top rated results were commentary about it. It was commentary from Rebel News. It was commentary from uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Gavin McGuinness. I didn't know who these people were, but they were uh, very compelling in what they were shouting about. They were saying that they are progressive, that the real racists are the the left who want to import people that want to do this to the gay community. I was gay and I was I felt like it was really, really scary that this was happening and there wasn't any other commentary dominating YouTube other than this. And it was people doing a gay kiss off outside like Milo and, 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 and Gavin. And it was Lauren Southern talking about it. And they did it in a way that said, look, you know, if you feel alienated from the left or if you feel alienated from these from these movements that are going to uh, have import people that will, you know, maim you or hate women, then come to our side. We're, you know, diverse. We're not, you know, very right wing. We're just we're just people that care about freedom. And there was good production value. And a lot of it was quite compelling. But what I noticed was once, once I watched like a couple of those videos, every time you go back onto YouTube, whether it's to do research for a project or whatever it is, your homepage is dominated by that content. And it's more and more general. It's about, I don't know, the history of communism, socialist takeovers. It's all these abstract ideas I didn't really hear of. But it was interesting to hear it for the first time. And there wasn't sort of counter content to any of that. And then you go on Facebook and you like a couple of their pages. And then your entire newsfeed is dominated by suggestions to listen to watch more stuff. So you like that and Breitbart. And then suddenly kind of all of the sites that you use to consume all of your information are kind of pushing like really, really, really right wing, more broad content to you just because you happen to come across a couple of these videos that we weren't really looking for anyway. I wasn't looking for racist videos. I didn't know they were racist at the time. I was looking for information about a shooting. And that's how most people discover that kind of content. It's just by typing generic stuff into or news news results into, into Facebook and YouTube and then being consumed by that stuff for ages. But you don't really notice you're doing anything extreme and and, um, uh, and the more that you listen to it the more that you read a lot of that stuff you start to sympathize with it a lot more again there's not really any counter arguments to it I, I don't think there's anything on tv or not that i would watch it really uh giving the same kind of analysis and commentary to 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 things like the Orlando shooting uh, and then trump was elected which legitimized it all which made it seem like any of their critics who said that they were just a fringe small group on the internet Suddenly, they're like half of America. Mm -hmm. Half of America can't be crazy. And they're everywhere, right? So I remember after a few months uh, thinking that in this country, things were getting, you know, really restricted. Free speech was getting out of control. I was listening to loads of videos talking about how Britain has fallen. I'm sure you've seen stuff like this. Or Sharia law is going to come into Britain and take away all of our freedoms. And it was really concerning. There was just a documentary on Channel 4 called The Jihadi Next Door, which was with loads of Islamists saying they were going to behead gay people in Britain. It was nuts. A lot of them went to prison afterwards. But... Um, it felt like uh, like these kind of online groups were um, the only people talking about it, and they were they were really pushing this stuff at the forefront. So I uh, remember picking up a microphone on January sixth, twenty seventeen, and I went Trump's inauguration, and uh, I went to a anti-Trump rally in London, and I interviewed them in this American kind of alt-light style where you kind of do it's kind of like a gotcha thing, right? But you just interview people that are uh, that are there and a bit you know, unhinged or don't really have the, the right answers to things. Um, 
And a lot of them were genuinely also just like, well, this is, you know, I don't really know why I don't like Trump. I, I just came here for a good time. And I just put it together into a montage like I'd seen people do in America. And it went viral. It got millions and millions of views. And I had people like Ezra Levant, people like, uh, I don't know, loads and loads and loads of people, Alex Jones and stuff, just reaching out to me like two days later saying, oh, we would love to work with you. Like, what are you doing? Like, who are you? It was just it was just like inundated with people who wanted to do that. So I quit my job and I was like, I'm going to do this. This is really important. And when you start getting involved in that stuff, I remember when I started with Rebel, like you, the only stuff I would talk about would be saying uh, people who like Trump aren't really racist. A lot of them just have genuine concerns. And uh, maybe Islam is incompatible with gay rights and we need free speech. These are subjects that are not really alt-right, or at least they weren't at the time, felt like quite a safe area to discuss these ideas. And again, we were working with people like you know, Candace Owens, people who are black. It didn't feel like you were part of an extreme thing. Um, but your normal friends start disappearing. They start dis- you know, not really associating with you as much. That gets talked about within your own circles and these new circles as well. They're just, you know, extreme leftists and they don't want to engage in political conversation. Families start to cut off and not really speak to you when they see you presenting videos and things like that. And so you just become, I guess, all of your new friends, all of your new circles, and this is the case with everyone I talked to who was in these groups, only end up being people on that political spectrum. Nothing gets questioned. You're in like an echo chamber um, and everything is is validated. Everything that you believe is validated. And what happens is you realize over sort of the months and the years, and I was only in it for two years, um, that the people who I used to watch and work for were far more extreme behind the scenes than they would present as on camera, which was quite like surprising at first, but I kind of was in those groups and I kind of started to sympathize with a lot of those ideas. But I realized that the kind of stuff they put out to capture gay audiences or black audiences, you know, this whole Brexit thing was kind of a ploy. Obviously, this might seem very obvious to all of your your audience, but really at the time I didn't, I was surprised about a lot of this stuff Um, to just pull in people for money or pull in people to make them more extreme or it would be to funnel them into this very complex ecosystem where they would actually uh, be linked to more and more and more extreme content through algorithms that um, exist on YouTube. And then they end up like super neo-Nazi and, and really, really far right. So the whole thing's quite dangerous. But anyway, left Rebel, went to work with Tommy independently, went and did you know a huge amount of work for Alex Jones and, and Lauren Southern and, and sort of a lot of these different people who I just became, they became my family. There was no one else in my life at the time. It was like completely, completely that. And we felt like we were on a bit of a crusade to like save the world and with, you know, free speech and open dialogue. And we wanted to, you know, defeat leftists. And it was, it was the stuff that you will have seen. But um, uh, my worldview started to shift sort of 2018, yeah, late 2018, when I started traveling the world, we did a documentary called Boardless with Lauren Southern. And at the time, like, we were doing a documentary about migrants and refugees coming to Europe. And it was about how they were invaders, about how they were going to be coming in and pillaging and setting up these no-go zones and say, and this is stuff that I fundamentally believed was happening. I hadn't seen it happen, but it dominated all my news feeds and it's what everyone spoke about, you know. Um, And I was on a hillside with Lauren for hours and hours a night waiting. We had snuck into Turkey with all of our cameras and film equipment and we were waiting for these kind of angry migrants to arrive with these dangerous human traffickers who would get into the boats and go to Europe. And on the fourth night, I remember they turned the headlights on and suddenly like the whole field lit up with refugees uh, who were like women and children. There were young men as well, but they were 
telling me that they didn't want to leave their home countries. They didn't want to leave the environments they were in. They, Europe was the only place that was safe. I said, why didn't you stay in Turkey? They said, because they jail everyone in Turkey who comes in. They say it's like crossing the border illegally and you get put into camps. There was an old woman who had all of her stuff in a, like a bin bag and she was like walking down a dirt road and like fell aside. And it was like extremely shocking. And I had no idea that, that these were the people coming to Europe genuinely. And we waited on the beach with them for hours and hours and you know, between 4 a.m. and like 6 a.m. and the sun started to rise very slowly and there were helicopters circling, the boat didn't arrive and they thought it was because we were the police and maybe the boat held off. We were all terrified. If we were caught, me and Lauren, we'd be arrested for bringing cameras into the country illegally. And if they were caught, they would be put in the camps. There was a shared like horrible feeling between everyone. And we left so that they, you know, the boat couldn't have more of a chance of arriving. And I never know what happened, but we were driving away I was driving uh, away with Laura and the sun started to rise like over this mountain. It was quite clear that, and I remember just saying to Lauren that I hope they made it. Um, and this is a clip that was somehow recorded. I guess one of our handicams or something was on and that I hope they got the boat and managed to make it. And she was kind of confused. And since that moment, I started to realize that if I was wrong about something that was so significant right in front of me, then what the hell else were we wrong about? Like mm. the feminism stuff, the free speech stuff. Is it really like all of the different things started to unravel and slowly I started to pull back and I gave Lauren a lot of that footage. And we kind of, we kind of started to pull off and cancel all of our projects. I stopped working with Tommy. I stopped working with Milo and people like that to their fury um, and um, pulled away. And I remember a month later when I was finally done, I, the Christchurch shooting happened. And I thought, my God, the same number of people have died here at Christchurch and died at Orlando. And he was using the same kind of rhetoric that people I was associated with. And I was like, it's gone, you know, almost like a full circle where these tragic events are like, you know, the solutions by, by becoming radicalized and going down a route, which you think has all the answers, which you think are going to stop things like that happen, can like potentially lead to the exact same kind of real world violence. And it was just a, like a, a realization that it was like, a good decision to have left and to have walked away from a lot of that stuff. And um, I remember the last thing I did was I, yeah, like I logged into Lauren's YouTube channel and deleted the great replacement video. Cause I was like, I don't want anyone to ever see that again. And then we stopped talking. Um, uh, so it was, yeah, crazy time. Well, you've, I mean, you, you've, you, you've certainly raised the ire of, of many of the people that you, you worked with uh, in past to say the least earlier this month, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, you know, posted a, an, an extended sort of long form investigation where he accuses you of, of defrauding Alex Jones. I know you've seen all this and risking the life of Tommy Robertson by sharing his location and, and risking the life of Gavin McInnes by sharing his travel itinerary and, and defrauding Lauren Southern. I mean, we received a, a personal email from Ezra Levant that I showed you before our conversation today. Ezra in touch with me on Saturday, describing you as a disgruntled former employee, says that your stories are false and defamatory, says that you are motivated by malice against him. This is obviously personal uh, between you and a lot of these people. Um, I want to circle back. You talk about 2018. And this experience, by the way, we spoke with the filmmakers behind a documentary called White Noise. Uh, that interview was back on May 12th, and they talk about that scene on the beach. If our audience members want to check that out, you can go into our podcast or YouTube archive and you'll find that show on, on May 12th um, in 2017. Before you had your epiphany 
Uh, I remember the first time I ever saw you on video. It was following that London Bridge attack in 2017. I'm sure you remember the hit that you did for Rebel Media. And and, and to paraphrase, you basically said that the, the perpetrator in this scenario appears to be Asian, you say, which should come as no surprise or will come as no surprise to anybody watching this video. And you said when you import a culture, you get that culture. At what point did it occur to you that that there was this dichotomy? You were drawn to this movement, essentially, because you felt that, that there was there was a risk of homophobic attacks. You felt as though hate groups, uh, leftists, so to speak, would be targeting you. Well, at the same time, you're reporting that, you know, quote unquote, Asians are importing cultures that are obviously leading to terror attacks. Did, did that ever kind of clash between your two ears? I suppose it did, but the number one thing that was driving my whole thing was like the the left, this is the, the rhetoric that was in all these videos and stuff that I was pushing, are wanting to bring people into our country who don't have values that are compatible with liberalism and progressivism and gay rights and women's rights. And so when you import these things, you get an increase. This is what I used to believe, right? You get an increase in hate crimes, you get against gay people, you get an increase in terrorism, you get all of these things. And I remember screaming in that video, like the blood is on the hands of, you know, the left and journalists for allowing this, apologizing for this. And this was the rhetoric that I was consuming all the time. And I fundamentally believed it. I remember I literally it was actually kind of crazy last weekend. I sat down with a guy who's the same age as me, who was in hospital for six months after that had happened. He was involved. You know, he was hit by the car and he watched that video and he was like, it was horrible to see because i never wanted anyone to experience the kind of pain that you know that he went through he said um and seeing your videos made me realize that it was going to lead to the same kind of stuff against other people and it was completely the wrong result but there was something amazing about like speaking to him about that uh and just how how these real world events based on what you're consuming online can split you to either go down this direction or this direction um and yeah i mean that's that's what it was do you, uh, you you talked about, you know, in your personal journey and you've described yourself as as having been radicalized. And I think to this point, even 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 the technophobes understand how algorithms work. But you described that once you started reading more content, whether it was Rebel or Breitbart or, or True North or whatever you were looking at, that the more that stuff started showing up on your feeds, how concerned are you that that people are separated into camps or, or you might even call them armies, though it's probably inflammatory language for me to describe it like that, that there's really no sense. I think, generally speaking, that there are different sources of information to be considered and different perspectives to be chewed on. Yeah, I mean, when you get recommended a video about a subject you've never seen or a person you've never seen, you don't think I'm being recommended a video for a nefarious reason. You think that is a video about something that's happening and it projects your real world view of what's going on as if it's just a standard news report. When I was running the channels of people who were on the the far right, I could see the back end on the YouTube channels. It was at least 85% of all the views that we got on our videos, including the ones I was presenting, were recommended to non-subscribers and people who weren't really already looking at, at very right-wing stuff. So it was people that weren't looking for it. So you have a huge problem with that that's still going, even though they've only gotten rid of a few figureheads like Alex, it's still going massively. But it's extremely concerning because once you're inside of those algorithms, unless you make brand new social media accounts, you, like all of our information comes from news feeds. We consume on average 300 feet of it a day. It's the length of a football stadium and we don't consume it from anywhere else. And it forms 
all of our worldviews about everything. And when you start to alter that and throw extremist ideas into that, then your entire worldview will be shifted in the exact same way as if you were physically surrounded by it. Again, with the lockdown, that's what even more intensified. I mean, it's still a huge problem. You know, even during the peak of the 2020 election, there were six times more clicks on articles that were uh, basically fake news compared to factual organizations. You had... Um, things like the January 6th riot, which is what led to me starting Future Freedom because I didn't realize it was that bad. You still have very, very, very radical people like Marjorie Taylor Greene now polling number one for Republicans. And you still have basically this very strange but obvious situation, which is everyone, at least in this country that I have spoken to over the last year, has a friend, a sister, a brother, someone they know who believes that COVID is fake. Literally everyone I've spoken to at dinner parties, at work events say, oh, my sister came around the other day. Oh, I was talking to a, a person down the street. Oh, my taxi driver. And it is literally like, a, a, I think it's one in four people or something, hope not hate, uh, an organization that look into this, say is now, is now believing COVID, uh, COVID denial related conspiracies. And so it's much worse than when I was involved in it. It's just changed to a different type of thing. It's no longer this extreme far-right kind of ideology, this kind of anti-SJW, this kind of stuff. It's moved, even though it's the exact same kind of model, the same kind of money's being made off it, and you still have all the kind of same connections, the same organizations. It's it's just shifted, it's become bigger, and it's, uh, it's really worrying. And it is the same thing. I went as a reporter to cover one of these anti-lockdown rallies a few months ago for Byline TV and was like chased out within five minutes by far-right supporters who had recognized me from before, and now I'm a traitor, right? And realized that actually it's the same type of people that are going to these things. It's just under the guise of, well, it's about COVID, it's about freedom and lockdowns. Um, I think it's super concerning and uh, very dangerous. You're you're obviously familiar with Faith Goldie. I, I the, Back in 2017, with everything that happened in Charlottesville, uh, that was, I think, that, that was the moment where, where, Faith Goldie to a lot of people became persona non grata, and it was really problematic for Rebel Media as well, distancing itself from her at that time. You told us that your journey, uh, your journey out of the alt right, so to speak, began with that personal experience, that individual conversation or those conversations you were having with people face to face while you were working with Lauren Southern. Southern uh, Charlottesville didn't do it for you. But months later, that well, personal experience, and I'll let you come in in just a sec, that personal experience did it for you. How important is it, that personal experience? We're talking about people that are being alienated, people that are being ostracized, people that are being isolated from others. If it takes a personal experience and those conversations are not happening, how concerned should people be? Well, extremely, because when things like Charlottesville happened, the interpretation, the interpreted very, very right wing version of that that I consumed, which was every real world event was an interpreted right wing version of that, was that there was a car accident, was that these a few of these people were kind of LARPing. They were kind of it was very sympathetic to a lot of it. It was it was there were a few people being silly and that, yeah, again, an accident and the mayor was really heavy handed or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. But it was sympathetic towards it from all the outlets that I was looking at. And it didn't really seem like a really crazy event. But I know that if I was there personally, it, looking back at what happened when I went to Turkey, it would have been a totally different situation and probably would have left there and then at that moment. But unless you're physically experiencing something, there's no way you're going to have any grasp of what's actually going on, whether that's a terror attack that happens, whether that's hate crimes that happen, whatever it is. 
there will always be an excuse for it with uh, with a kind of radicalized newsfeed. If a real hate crime happens, it's not reported, you will not know about it. If a hoax happens, like Jesse Smollett, then it will be at the forefront of your newsfeed forever, confirming this idea that they're all hoaxes. That's literally just one example of it. The same kind of stuff will be happening with the election and, and had happened with the election being stolen. And, and it's really worrying because if it took me going thousands of miles to Turkey and being on that beach and literally having to speak to people and see that I was wrong about all this stuff and that it wasn't happening, no one else is going to really have that opportunity. We can't fly millions of radicalized Americans or British people who believe a number of things to, to physically show them in real life that they're wrong about something that's not possible. Um, so it's a disaster. I mean, like if it took those extreme, this is why you have people who are only admitting that they were wrong about COVID denial when they're physically in ICU. You see all these videos of them, they're on these breathing tubes and they're saying, oh my gosh, I was wrong. I need to take it. Like it literally takes a physical, horrible confrontation in real life to, to, to show you that you're wrong about something. Had you seen those videos? Yeah, we were just talking right before we talked to you. We're, we're, we're talking to a, a, an ICU doctor who's, you know, been told to go fuck himself by a patient in the ICU uh, who is who is resisting the doctor's diagnosis that he's there because of covid. But he insisting the whole time. I shouldn't call him buddy. I'm not making light of it, but insisting that it's a bad reaction to antibiotics, quite literally on what could be. I hope not. But what could be that guy's deathbed still pushing back on the physician that's providing him with care. We're talking to Kaylin Robertson, if you're just joining us live on our Mixler audio feed, or if you're tuning in later, catching this on our podcast, Kaylin, I want to I want to get to some of the comments from our live YouTube YouTube audience. Give you a chance to respond to it. Trevor M says, "I'm so glad this guy's changed his ways. It sucks that in the future his old media could be used against him." Rose says, "My own son doesn't believe COVID is real. He keeps sending me videos to prove he's right, and I don't know how to get through to him." We got another comment here from Tracy who says we need friends and trusted sources to convince us. That's why yelling at anti-maskers doesn't work. They don't trust you any more than you trust them. They're not going to be convinced by you. This seems to be your new mission now to get through to people that you might describe as radicalized. How do you approach it? How does it work? I mean, the first thing to do is what the last comment basically says is to not be hostile to somebody who is going down a rabbit hole and to not because it literally makes it so much worse. It isolates them more. It makes them vitriolic. I mean, when I was going down the rabbit hole, when members of Antifa or people like that would come to my house or intimidate me and things like that, all it did would make me think that I was on the right path and that it it really made things way worse, honestly. And if there were people who had come to me at that time and not just walked away so quickly and said, actually, a lot of this stuff, maybe you're not right about it. Maybe maybe we can go out like and, and you know, spend some time together outside of the Internet and outside of your friendship circles. I probably would have been pulled back in a lot of ways. So to isolate people is a really, really, really bad idea. The other thing is, is that um, there really isn't an environment that exists yet for people who are questioning their views, whether it's extreme right wing views, election stolen views or, you know, conspiracy related kind of like COVID stuff where they can question those things and kind of walk away in a kind of like not an extremely judgmental, really, really, really harsh environment. When I left a few years ago from these groups, there was an incredible amount of animosity towards me. And I do kind of understand that, but it made me kind of 
you know, it was very, very public, people being really nasty about it. Once you have these views, you can never come back into society again. You can never be allowed to do anything again. And I thought, right, okay, well, I can mentally manage this. But what are other people who are watching this from the outside going to think when they think, you know what, maybe I've realized the same thing as Kaylin and I want to leave and I can't because I don't want to go through what he did with the incredible amount of abuse and hostility and, and things like that. So it's also about having that time and not isolating people. But really, there's not going to be a way to change people's mind just by talking to them about facts or about, you know, fact checkers and the New York Times or, or, or the news or anything like that. The, that's completely already written off to these people. It's already controlled X, Y, and Z. I think it's just about basically talking about the people that are profiting from it, the people that are behind a lot of the groups. I mean, Anna Kasparian and the Young Turks have done a lot of the videos talking about the kind of uh, from the American side anyway, a lot of the people that are pushing the disinformation on Facebook and physically mentioning those individual people and how they're connected to money scam schemes and how they've made loads of money from your views and how they are actually quite nefarious. To be honest, talking about the individuals behind it that they're listening to and the faces behind it and talking about how they are basically nefarious, which they all are will do a lot more than trying to argue on like the individual points. Like, okay, well, you know, if the nurses were behind it, then how hasn't someone spoken out? This is just a waste of time. That's what I found really effective by talking about Alex Jones. I gave information and videos about him to the SPLC being disparaging about his supporters. And he was saying, you know, I hate, I actually don't care about Trump and I've made loads of money. He's basically laughing about his supporters. Um, and that did far more to defer, deter a lot of the people that watched his content than me just talking about how, he, how he's wrong or the media just talking about how he's wrong. So it's also about really breaking down the people behind it and how they're laughing at you, how they're making money from you and how it's all connected in the very, very sort of dodgy ecosystem. Terry's watching and she's she's wondering if you fear for your safety uh, now that you're speaking out. I, I'm curious to know how you'll answer that. I'm also curious to know as a follow up question uh, what it's been like, you you know, for you, uh, you know, considering the particularly litigious nature of some of the people that you're calling out. What is the experience of your exit from the alt right been like from a from a personal legal and, and safety standpoint? Really difficult. When I stepped away and walked away from a lot of this stuff, it was with Tommy Robinson and I was living a few doors down from him and it made it really hard to kind of make a clean break. You have to very slowly pull back on a lot of it. One of the really, really difficult things is as soon as people in your environments or people who are also in the far right uh, realize that you're wanting to leave, they're going to do massive disinformation campaigns against you to, to discredit you, so you can't talk about them in the media, so they see you as untrustworthy. This happens to many people leaving the right, including people leaving Scientology and leaving lots of different extreme groups. So once you've broken away from that, there's a physical aspect to it. There are millions of views that I've been attributed to, and I get recognized in the street probably once a week still in London by right-wing people. Half the time they're waving and cheering and they think I'm still involved in it, and the other half, it's, it's abuse and it's extremely worrying. But there's only so much that you could like. I I, I think the, you know, the, that was one of the things that kind of compelled me originally to not want to talk about any of this, to not want to go after it or expose any of these people, like I did with Tommy and like I did with 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 Alex. But when I saw things like January sixth happening, and when I saw also that there are still millions of people watching my videos on Rebel that are still up right now and monetized and messaging me and saying, oh. Uh, hey, like just 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 saw your video about like gay rights or or Islam, and it was really really you know it was really fantastic. And I have to write a really long message to them about how they shouldn't be watching these things and how actually it's all a lie. 
I wanted that to happen on a bigger scale and I wanted to try and reverse a lot of that damage, which is why I put myself out there. But it is, uh, I, I suspect something will happen at some point. I got, I, some, I had someone look at me in the street a few months ago in a strange way and went onto Telegram and typed my name in searches. And I saw that they were all posting pictures of me saying he's here, he's in this location. So that's just that. Um, and it's a strange situation because when I joined all this stuff, it was Tommy and all these people always told me that the left were the real violent ones. They're Antifa. They want to kill free speech. They want to attack people. They want to do all this stuff. And we're the you know rational ones. And now that I'm on the outside of it, it's literally like the opposite. Um, but Byline have been really amazing. They've helped with, you know, resettling me. And But there's only so much that you can do, right? Resettling. That's a that's a powerful word for you to use. Uh yeah, it really is. Yeah, I'm and I know a lot changing of changing your entire address, moving everything very, very quickly. It's that's that's what you have to do. Yeah. Well, and also like physically, but also sort of ideologically too, right? I mean, I mean, you've you 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 went down this path and collaborated with, like I've said, kind of the who's who of these movements, and and now to be speaking out against it while still, quite frankly, a young man. I mean, what a compelling journey, what an interesting journey. But but I would imagine that there are probably things that you, you'll, you'll not even divulge to us, which which I'll understand that have made this difficult. I'm curious to know for the people that are going to be sharing this content, for people that are going to be hearing this interview, whether it's Rose, whose son doesn't believe in covid or, or whether it's somebody whose husband, you know, believes that that, you know, Sharia is going to be a problem in Canada or whatever. I mean, we could go down 100 different storylines. What's the best way to counter what we might describe as radical ideology in the spirit of, of what you're doing with future freedom. What are a couple of things you want to leave this audience with things to consider and, and any, even a, a modus operandi, if you will. It's very difficult. I mean, really the, the number one thing to do is again, don't isolate people. Don't be furious and angry at people. Don't raise, you know, start shouting and, and getting into confrontations. Uh, don't try and use facts and logic to change their opinions. That's already out the window is basically to try if they're a loved one or there's someone that you have control over in some kind of not control over, but someone that you have influence with, right. Um, is to encourage them to go outside and, and engage with normal life again. People have been locked away, you know, rightfully because of COVID. They've been in their houses for like a year and a half now. And that's the reason that so many of them have become radicalized because they've spent so much time online. Um, to take them to a restaurant now, if it's open, to take them to a party or to take them to a coffee shop or to just go for what, just to take them outside and just to encourage those people to reconnect with society again, reconnect with normal people. That will be hugely impactful. Still even now, loads and loads and loads of people haven't really had much human contact and wherever it's safe and appropriate to do that honestly i would just encourage that is to just get away from social media yeah i sort of i find more and more wisdom in that approach every single day uh to be quite honest with you caitlin let me ask you this in closing i'm just curious i, I don't know if you followed the story or not i'll recognize you're you're halfway around the world from us but uh last week uh, Rebel Media fought and won in court to be accredited to cover the leaders debates. Uh, of course, Canadians will be heading to the polls a week from today, a federal election looming. R Rebel sent correspondents there and, and they became inserted themselves in the story, kind of became part of the story. Them being there was the story they were telling in your mind, in your opinion, as a former correspondent and collaborator with Rebel News, does Rebel News deserve accreditation to cover mainstream federal politics, including the leaders' debates in Canada? What's your opinion? 
Well, I think anything that adds any uh, form of legitimacy to an outlet that genuinely has pushed conspiracy theories, lies and misinformation is is a bad idea. That's it. I think any way to legitimize that, to to show it in a way where they can appear at you know, real serious government press conferences is, is, is not good. I mean, gatekeepers are, you know, gatekeepers in the media are not this big, 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 terrible things. There, there are systems that need to be in place for legitimate media outlets to not go and push extreme or false information to their viewers. And, and if you lose a lot of that and you lose a lot of trust in institutions and you have news outlets basically all over the place uh, pushing whatever they want, I just don't think that's a terrible idea. So uh, no, I don't think they should be. <laughs> they should be doing that. You can read more about what Kalen and uh, his colleagues are doing at futurefreedom.community. A former producer for the alt-right, our guest here this morning live on Real Talk from London, England. Thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. You bet. On the live chat, Neil says that was a really good interview. He says people need to listen to him, like really listen. Neil says there's some good insight regarding the world we currently have and how some of us go way offside, in my opinion. That from Neil. Some random guy says, I'll, I'll say it again. It's a dangerous trap to always believe you're the rational one and to always believe you're right. Remember that. Always keep it in the back of your mind that maybe you're wrong and stay humble. To a certain degree, yes. I agree with stay humble for sure. It's maybe easier said than done to, to talk about whether or not we believe you're, you're always right or you're always the rational one. If we start talking about things like whether or not COVID-19 is real. And I'm sure I'm like a lot of you where sometimes my patience gets thin. I've shared with you, not by name, but I've shared with you before some some people that are friends of mine or some people that I've considered friends have adopted some really, really troubling, quite frankly, infuriating positions on things like the pandemic and on things like vaccines. And and previously, when I would have you know, friendly debates with these guys. I mean, these are guys I've snowboarded with, played golf with, gone hiking with. I mean, these are friends. It would center around whether or not Donald Trump was fit for office or, or it would center around things that were a little bit more like, well, I'm kind of like, you know, if I were American, I would vote Republican for this. And I'll acknowledge that nobody's an angel, but Bill Clinton wasn't an angel. And, and you know, Barack Obama, you know, ordered more drone strikes than any other American president in history. So who are you to throw stones at Donald Trump? And then there'd kind of be this big level, kind of high level type conversations. And then it started getting into things like science, a pandemic, hospital beds being taken up, ICUs at capacity. Healthcare workers being abused from outside the hospitals where they continue to show up every single day. And, and that to me is where I'm to. Here's my real talk for you is like that's when it's much more difficult to be. And I'm not, I don't even want to say open minded, but to be pleasant and respectful and calm. I can blow a gasket just like anybody else and I can get really frustrated. And sometimes I find it way easier to just block somebody or unfriend somebody or to walk away from these conversations. And the real talk I have, I'm curious to ask my colleagues here. The real talk is that I really struggle 
with whether or not I even want to participate in these types of conversations because I'm not sure I remember. I mean, Kaylin might be the first person that I've talked to in a long time that goes on the record and says, I demonstrably changed my opinion on something. Sam, I mean, are, are, do you wager and do you, do you jump in and you plunge in, and you participate in conversations where you know the subject matter is going to absolutely drive you nuts? And if so, how do you do it? So this is a little personal for me right now um, because I'm, I'm watching a, a distant family member go down this radical path right uh, now. Yeah. Um, not going to name names. She's been an anti-vaxxer her whole life. Uh, COVID has sort of pushed her over that edge, sharing nothing but misinformation online yeah um and is now a staunch supporter of maxine bernier in the ppc we're talking about you know an, an interior bc for lack of a better word hippie who believes everything bernier tells her now okay uh it's frustrating and it's frustrating because like caitlin said you can't fight with facts you can't put data on the table you can't do anything that says to them right in their face you're wrong because that is that that just makes people dig their heels in further. Professor Tim Caulfield yeah. said the same thing on the show. Exactly. And, and that's what I don't know. Like, Sarah, I don't know about you, but I really struggle with do not confront. And, and, and as soon as I say these people, Don Cherry is going to start trending on Twitter again. When we talk about people that would take these views and again, I'm really generalizing because are we talking about COVID? Are we talking about politics? Are we talking about immigration? Are we talking about foreign policy? What are we talking about here? If not facts, then what? And I sort of perceive the mandate to be somewhere along the lines of let's get back to being able to occupy the same space physically or otherwise and dialogue. But if not facts, then what? That's what I wrestle with. I don't know the answer. Yeah. I think just listening to what Kaylin said is that all those subject matters, all those topics you just mentioned, whether it is vaccines, whether it is foreign uh, affairs, like foreign relations, uh, politics, they are weaponized. Um, and so when we, as to his point, the idea that what we were seeing around politics has now morphed and has now been weaponized and, and taken on to COVID. So, um, I mean, uh, I've shared that, uh, an uncle of mine really went f far down the rabbit hole and, um, and I tried to re like tell him that I cared about him and that he really matters to me and that I'm concerned about him. And that got me blocked. And that's what's happening. Yeah. It's what's happening I, I, you have to be so careful these days. You don't use supercharged language because there seems to be an association with everything. But if I say that's what's happening on both sides, right? That was Donald Trump's thing after Charlottesville, you know, good people on both sides. But if you talk about opposite ends of the spectrum and where people really clash. People are blocking. People are walking away. I mean, you're sharing it with us right now on our live chat, what it means for your own family situation or your own friend circle lisa right now says i haven't like officially unfriended my boyfriend's mom but i had to unfollow her i can handle the things she posts or i can't handle rather the things she posts and it makes it hard to maintain my empathy for her i'm so glad lisa invoked the word empathy because that's what this all comes down to it's what we were talking to dr darren markland around like healthcare workers do not have a choice 
I would imagine deep down inside, if you got real talk from an exhausted healthcare worker at the end of their rope, at the end of a shift, and asked them like real talk off the record, is it more difficult for you to provide services to somebody that doesn't believe in the undeniable reality of why they're in the ICU? Is it harder for you to provide quality care for them? I bet you those healthcare workers would say, I've got to dig a little deeper. But if you said to them, do you provide that same quality of care? They would say, of course, that's my job. It's my calling. Heavy D says, and I'm with Heavy D on this one, says it's hard to not be infuriated with people who protest at hospitals or encourage your family members to put other people at risk. You know, there's a there's a fatigue there. James says, if COVID hadn't happened, I really think Trump would have won the election again. Logic Kelly speaking is tuned in, says I'm very fatigued with the anti-mask and anti-vax folks, and I'm really trying, but I'm finding it really hard right now. I don't blame any of you for that. You can share with us where you're at and how you're feeling. Thanks to Mike, who said this is just a really powerful interview. Trevor says, Kaylin gives me hope for people I know who are radicalized. You can always let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. That was a great booking by Sarah Hoyles. And again, of course, that'll be posted. Our podcast will go up about an hour after we're off the air live here. And of course, you can share all of our content by way of the tweets that we push out. And of course, our YouTube file as well. The team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge want to remind you that the brand new Jeep Grand Cherokee L is coming in stock. They're getting a few at a time, and these are beautiful rigs. I had a chance to see one the other day out at their brand new, beautiful St. Albert dealership. This is the first Grand Cherokee with the third row of seating, up to seven seats in that Grand Cherokee. Now, of course, with the arrival of these ones, means they've got other brand new trucks that need to go. They need to clear space, and the Grand Cherokee Laredo is one that right now at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep, you can find it for under 47000 Of course, they're your home, your trusted home for Ram as well. And while people are having a difficult time, ask anybody. Finding new trucks, the used pre-owned inventory has never been stronger at these two dealerships. If you're looking for a truck with low kilometers on it, still coming with, of course, that guarantee, the warranty you'd expect, or maybe you're looking to cash years in, maybe ahead of your lease expiry, maybe you're looking to downsize, they'd love to hear from you at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. The teams at Local Waste want to remind you they do business with entrepreneurs, small businesses, and the big guys too, but they also provide residential services. I know a lot of you are going to be using these next few weeks to be purging the basement, to be getting ready for winter, to be clearing out all that stuff. Local Waste has bins of all different sizes. They'll find a custom fit for you. You can learn more about the services they provide in Alberta and Saskatchewan at localwaste.ca. And don't forget Trash Talk coming up on Friday, presented by Local Waste. If you have something you need to get off your chest, you can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Well, every week we're proud to partner with the team at Y Station to bring you our Get Real our question of the week. And over this past week, we asked how you're feeling about Alberta and the federal response to COVID-19. In particular, our questions focused on Premier Jason Kenney's $100 gift card initiative, what you think it should be called, and whether or not you think it's going to work. The team at Y Station has prepared a f- another phenomenal top line report for us. All of our Patreon supporters have already received it in their email. And right now we want to get into 
some of the more notable results. Uh, just under 1,200 of you responded to this one this week. 1,188 Real Talkers chimed in. Sam, let's take a look at some of the results. Real Talkers have named this incentive program by a wide margin. 42% of you Bumbles box. Bumbles box is what we're calling the $100 gift card incentive with honorable mention from the comments to Plague Doe. I thought that Plague Doe, Plague Doe, it doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue, but I thought that that was pretty funny. Plague Doe. Congratulations. I think it's like Play Doh. Yeah. It's like Play Doh, except it's Plague Doe. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's the joke. Okay, let's get to the next one. Oh, let's God. get to the next one from what? Where did you think it came? Of course it's from Play-Doh. 70% of... I'm sorry, Sam. I'm just... It's a Monday. What can I say? I'm ornery. 70% of real talkers don't believe that Bumble's box will incentivize more people to get vaccinated. Seven out of 10 of you said, I don't think it's going to work. Perhaps more of note, if we flip that statistic, up to 30% of you are open-minded that maybe it would. But to this point, it's not seen the bump that people might have expected, especially when compared to things like the so-called vaccine passport or vaccine accreditation that the province of British Columbia, among others, have implemented. Here's another interesting data point. Fifty three percent. A majority of real talkers believe that restricting access to non-essential and essential services is worth trying if the one hundred dollar Bumble's Bucks incentive fails. That's a number a little bit lower than I thought it might be. 53% of you think that restricting access to essential and non-essential services is the way to go. I guess you got to ask what qualifies as essential, essential services. You know, you're not going to close the door. You're not going to lock the door to a hospital to somebody that's unvaccinated. What about things like grocery stores? You know, or, or, or what qualifies someone who is either unable or unwilling to get a vaccine to enter somewhere they may need to go? Is it proof of a negative COVID-19 test within the last 48 hours? Maybe that's what people might look at. Let's get to another graphic from our top line report. 4% of you, 4% of the 1,188 that chimed in feel like this is just the normal course of a pandemic and this could not have been avoided. And finally, 51% of you were heckin' pissed. Heckin' pissed about the premier i think for some people the word pissed might actually be more offensive than the word that heckin is replacing yeah, uh, a lot of people yeah, yeah. When, when, in, in the circles i grew up in the circles i rolled up in pissed was like pretty heavy pretty that, that was like flamethrower language absolutely yeah at my house if you ever said anything like that or crap crap was another bad oh, one yeah. oh, and yeah. my dad would always say now sarah we all know those words but we don't use them oh we're trying to navigate. We a six year old now. Mm. We're trying. We're trying to navigate because he hears some spicy language from time to time. I had a buddy swing by this weekend, and I finally had to interrupt him. I'm like, "You're aware there's mixed company here, right? With regards to age demographic." And this sort of washed over him with this realization that he'd been talking like he was on the docks, just in from six months at sea. And uh, yeah, yeah. I had a cousin. Their family they weren't allowed to say fart, and so they'd say traff. They just said the word backwards. <laughs> people in religious communities always come up with these substitute words right like the, always the substitute words that are like dang. like there's frickin frickin there's i'm frickin dang. i'm frickin ticked or i'm heckin pissed my mom would say like oh well that's bull oni bull loney yeah. <laughs> i've got a buddy that used to cry fuck crying out loud <laughs> 
And here's one more from Y Station. This one jumped out at us as a team. Thought this was pretty interesting. One percent of those of you that took our survey, our Get Real Question of the Week last week, one percent of you said that this was indeed the best summer ever. I'd like to talk to those one percent. Although, you know what? I did. I mean, you, you, who? Darren Markland was right. The doctor was right earlier when he said, hey, deep down inside, I hoped that it would be. Deep down inside, I hope that everything would work. I hope that it would be the best summer ever. Who would cheer against recovery? Who would cheer against a great summer? But he said in the back of his mind, he knew that it wasn't going to be. Let's get to some of your comments. This is what we really, really appreciate when you when you take the time to fill in the blanks, so to speak. Maybe spend an extra minute filling out our question of the week. So, so Bumble's box one, Plague Doe was honorable mention. What were some of the other ones? Grift cards, which I thought was good. That was a write-in. The Vax tax cluster bucks was pretty good. The vaccination holdout benefit. (laughs) Fear funding. And a note from chief strategist Chris Henderson at Y Station says there were many, many, many extremely rude names that we simply cannot publish in a report like this for the sake of propriety and common decency. Some of them were very funny, though, that from Chris Henderson. So just because you're not hearing your suggested word thrown into the report does not mean that it was not noted by the team at Y Station. Do you think giving the unvaccinated $100 for getting a shot will work? Here's what some of you said. No. One real talker said a $500 fine for being unvaccinated by October 15 would be more revenue neutral. Another said, no, the unvaccinated are identifying with this cause so much that they'll stick to their unvaccinated status. And this $100 opens the divide between us and them even wider. Another says, I I, I do think that they should be pushing the reluctant 18 to 30 year old crowd to get vaccinated. Get the jab, get 100 bucks, reopen the bars and buy yourself some drinks. Another says, I believe that three in 10 will get vaxxed because of the incentive, but a passport, a vaccine passport would have done as much without punishing those of us that are vaccinated with a lower cost. It also would have reduced the spread. Interesting point there. We asked, what's the worst potential outcome of this? One of you said it's simply not enough to manage the current crisis in hospitals. Other measures would be much more effective and probably cost us less. How about this? Here's a little fire aimed at me. An audience member said, stop blaming a few people for bad governance and a weak public health system. You've shifted all the blame for a worldwide pandemic on a few people who have no say scapegoating to let those in power off the hook. Shame on you for being part of the media joining in this. I hate the unvaccinated campaign. Another says the worst case is this doesn't work. This goes on longer and this won't be the last vaccine we need for people to line up in our lifetimes. And we can't go through this every single time. Now, when we ask if after 14th of October, the deadline, that's the deadline, by the way, for, for, the, for the grift cards, for the, the, the Bumbles box. What else can we do as a society to get vaccination rates up? One of you said uh, bring vaccines to communities where people aren't able to easily access them, make it easy, effective and convenient for people to get vaccinated. Those are the core tenets of public health and applying them would have worked well or have worked well, even in other places that are facing outbreaks. Heck, drop them via drones, drive them into remote towns, have vaccination stations at libraries, transit centers, whatever it takes. Get it done. How about this? A double vaccination required for fishing and hunting licenses. 
It's a little focused. It's just a little focused. It's, I mean, it's funny because if you think about the activity of fishing and hunting, it's outside and it's distanced and it's probably one of the absolute few things you can do and your vaccine status probably doesn't matter, but still it would it would be a real good incentive i wonder if somebody threw that in there because you had the opportunity as part of the lotto vax that earlier lottery uh to get a hunting tag for a bighorn sheep i wonder if that was a reference because that was one of the lot that was one of the lottery items that were up for grabs earlier another says you can make up all the mandates non-essential or essential rules you can make them all if you want but listen, if you think you're going to get your freedoms back from this by everybody getting the juice, you're delusional. And here it is. Get in shape, get some sunlight, take your vitamins and eat healthy. That's the best thing you can do for yourself and others, says this person. Fuck the juice. Uh, not big on the vaccine. This person, you know, you might say, why are you reading comments like this? I want to be very clear. And I said this earlier in the show as well. This is not. We don't do our question of the week to reiterate my personal positions on things, reading only the comments that agree with me. We don't bring guests on the show that only agree with me or agree with Sarah or agree with Sam. And we don't only tackle subject matter that we think is important, newsworthy or relevant. This is a show where obviously we have editorial standards, but we want to reiterate that people gathering here in community People having and participating in these conversations, whether you're a passive listener, whether you're an active audience member, what have you, we want to reiterate that we hear different points of view, and that's why real talk is significant. It's really easy, quite frankly, to stay in your neck of the woods, to stay in your ideological bio zone, your bubble, so to speak, and to never venture out. To never confront perspectives that are different different than yours. But if we've learned anything, if there's been a theme through this entire broadcast, it's reiterating to me how important it is to have conversations across the aisle, so to speak, to continue to reach out to people whose opinions may drive you crazy, may exhaust you. But once we've lost the ability to get into these areas of discomfort, these gray areas in some circumstances, though some of us may perceive them to be areas of of black and white truth or untruth, truth or lies, then where are we if we can't have these conversations? That's the bedrock of this show. Ryan, I I just want to flag, though, that it is important that fact, as our guest talked about on Friday around 9-11 and the schism, the American schism, that it's a it's important to not just say, you know, like I have my facts and that person over there has their facts to say why we didn't have a 9-11 truther on on Friday. Absolutely. But to say that, you know, take multivitamins that will um, that will protect you from a deadly, (laughs) a potentially deadly virus is not accurate. So I, I just I, I caution against that. I mean, I don't I don't think it's fair to say that having somebody that is conservative leaning talk about the federal election and then someone saying don't use juice. They're not. It's not what we're doing. Yeah. And it's why Kaylor Betts wasn't on the show. Yeah. It's why we didn't make Kaylor Betts famous. It's why we brought on Shazma Mathani and Tim Caulfield to talk about that mental wealth professionals assertion that vitamins and fresh air and fitness protect you from COVID-19. And the show's position has been adamantly clear on that. 
But I'm not going to pretend that there aren't people that consume our content that don't feel that way. There are people that feel that way. There are people that believe that multivitamins are your best protection against COVID-19. And I think it's important to pretend or to not pretend like those perspectives don't exist. We asked you that while Premier Jason Kenney was on vacation for a couple of weeks while COVID cases and hospitalizations skyrocketed, we wanted to know how you felt about that. One of you said he's entitled to time off, but it should have been clear who was covering for him. And that person should have been communicating with the public on his behalf during that time frame. Another says, of course, Premier can take vacation, but he needs to leave someone rational in charge. You know, his government sat around for an extra three weeks as shit hit the fan. If he was the Premier in constant communication with his team, why didn't they put in half-assed measures or why, you know, I mean, things that maybe I don't know might have had some impact while he was gone. The health minister could have done it. The chief medical officer of health could have done it. School was starting. They really want us to believe it doesn't spread in school at all. Schools are Petri dishes, said one of you. Another said he goes on vacation to avoid burnout while nurses are asked to cancel vacations. If anybody has a feeling of being burned out, it's got to be nurses and doctors. Besides, shouldn't the deputy premier stand up and step up and cover while premier's gone i know that when my boss takes a vacation says this audience member whoever's right below them steps up and takes care of things that the manager normally would another says kenny's vacation is a nothing burger that his haters are using to sow division another one of you says he was likely told to keep his head down during the federal conservative campaign and he likely would have done nothing to protect us anyway and we asked you anything else Sometimes I'll do that at the end of an interview. Is there anything we've missed? Is there anything you want to leave us with? Is there a question? I love asking this in interviews. Is there a question that interviewers never ask you that you always wish you'd be asked? Sometimes that's the best two minutes of a whole conversation. So we asked you anything else. When you said, I had a great summer with my family. We were able to get out camping. We were able to spend time together. I'm all for talking about the positive summer experience we had. I just don't want this government taking credit. That's what one of you said. Another said, uh, quoting Warren Buffett, it's only when the tide goes out, you discover who's been swimming naked. The COVID-19 pandemic has been this government and this premier's ebb tide, though I know it's not a pretty visual. Total and complete lack of consistent, trustworthy leadership starting at the top. People are dying because of this incompetence. This government needs to be shown the door in 2023. This is a tough one. Listener says, I got a letter a few weeks ago informing me as a person trying to survive on age that my fast acting insulin is being switched to something different, a biologic in order to save money. And I've already had to switch my slow acting insulin and I'm not having great sugar control right now. I've been on insulin for 20 years and I don't know how my body will adjust. It's scary. And then to be told I have to take a medication I don't know is going to work for to save money and then to watch these same people give $100 per vaccine shot, it kills my soul. It tells me that I don't matter. I see lots of humans in this government, but I see zero humanity. And then the audience member wraps by saying, if I could leave this place, I would. And some criticism for our survey. An audience member says this is the most biased survey that I've ever completed. Very one-sided, not well-worded. There are places with high vaccination rates that are experiencing a fourth wave. This virus is manufactured. Why is that not being discussed? 
And then a note from Chris just encouraging me to take a deep knee bend and breathe a bit. This person obviously did not take the Eskimos, uh, you know, feedback on changing the name. That survey. Which one was that? <laughs> oh, way back when you mean the, Oh, you're talking about with regards to bias. Yeah. Well, we took it. If I remember correctly, we, we and I mean, we as our team in partnership with Y Station took the position that the name must change. And as it changes, what should it change to or how should it change? Right. Yeah. I think it's OK to have a definitive, uh, you know, in a sense. And, and I'm not a lawyer, believe it or not. But I think in, in court, they may refer to like an agreed statement of facts. I think at some point with a survey, it's okay to say, I mean, like we would unabashedly put out, a, you know, one a question of the week that would say um, COVID-19 is real. And based on the fact that it is real and that vaccines work, what do you think about this? And we won't apologize for that. But again, that's why we leave blank open spaces on our questions of the week for people to chime in. Instead of taking a deep knee bend and breathing a bit, we're, we're just going to get to positive reflections in, in just a second. But first, I wanted to remind you that the team at Park Power right now is making it easier than ever for you to take your Internet, electricity and natural gas business their way. I told you I was lucky enough to meet with their founding president, Chris Kozowski, just last week. Just a, a great dude. Huge commitment to supporting local himself. Met at a local restaurant supported local in every way we could and i said what's the one thing you want to reiterate to real talkers he said people have a choice you have a choice where you get your internet electricity natural gas why not go with the local company that supports local nonprofits with 10 percent of our electricity profits you even get to choose when you take your business over to park power where you want that charitable donation to go it's all part of their offerings that have made them one of alberta's most popular utilities providers make sure you use the promo code 2021 dash real talk when you sign up at park power that's going to save you 70 dollars off your first bill also a shout out to the team at kubi energy jake and i were chatting just a while ago i said how is how are your teams and he goes man pedal to the metal more people than ever before are considering solar he told me the number of referrals they've received from real talkers it knocked my socks off knocked my socks off Real talkers are serious about sustainable energy goals and finding ways to implement it. I said, I said, are they people in the city? Are they people in rural areas? Are, are they ag producers? Are they people with commercial operations, industrial? And he goes, yep. You can find more at kubienergy.ca. And of course, you make sure you let them know you heard about them on Real Talk. Each and every Monday, typically, unless it's been a long weekend, our first show of every week, we, we get the week started off on the right foot. Thanks to our friends at Kubi Energy, this show is proud to present Positive Reflections. We got this email from Jordan who said, uh, good morning, Ryan, sent it into talk at ryanjesperson.com, clearly labeled it for Positive Reflections. Jordan, thanks for that, says my daughter, like so many this week, had her first day of kindergarten and it was her first time riding the bus just this past Thursday. She shares a stop with a grade one girl who immediately took her hand when the bus pulled up and led her on board for those first big steps. Jordan says, I stood there a blubbering mess because the kindness that these kiddos exude is enough to make the most cynical of hearts burst. And yes, because I'm that mom, says Jordan, I followed the bus to school and I saw them disembark still holding hands. Jordan says a successful first day and the start of a wonderful friendship. She signs off an emotional and grateful mama. That's absolutely beautiful. 
Now, just a short while ago, our wonderful friend, Julie Rohr, a member of our Real Talk editorial board, joined us. It was last Tuesday she was on the show, and it's been a tough week for Julie, her family, and her friends. That includes Hannah Hamilton. And and Hannah on Twitter uh, threw this out there just the other day. said, you want to help me love on Julie Rohr during these last moments with her? And you want to delight her to no end? If you know Julie, she loves Shit's Creek. I'm hoping we can get her a personal video from the cast. How amazing to see Emmy award-winning producer, actor, writer, and all-around remarkable Canadian, Dan Levy, release this. Julie, Dan Levy here. On behalf of the cast and crew of Schitt's Creek, we are so glad that you loved our show. We're so glad that it has brought you joy. And we are all, each and every one of us, sending you so much love right now. Amazing stuff from Dan Levy. Julie, we love you and we're thinking of you. Our entire team is. We got this email from Tanya who wrote in to say, Ryan, with with Julie Rohr's transition into hospice care this week and with the outpouring of of love she is most deservingly receiving. uh, Tanya says, I had an idea about how the show, Real Talk, might continue down this path that she has lit for us. Maybe a a full week or, or maybe even an entire show about regular people doing ordinary or even extraordinary acts of love and grace and kindness and charity. Uh, Tanya says, like positive reflections on steroids. Tanya says the pandemic has sucked and, and yeah, there's elections and there's political battling and we need a damn break, says Tanya. A pause to remember that loving each other matters and it matters a lot that how we express that love matters too. Things feel dark and Julie's been a light of hope and inspiration to our better angels. Tanya says, you know, the deal. You know how this kind of thing works and and maybe how easy or hard it is to find content to the show. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. I'm just reflecting on what Julie has started and I'm hoping we can find a way to keep that torch going. That from Tanya. Well, here's what I have to say. You have no doubt if you saw that interview with Julie or if you follow her on social media, been impacted by her perspective, her courage, her grace, her integrity, her love for her fellow human beings. We'd love to hear your positive reflections inspired by Julie Rohr. And I ask you to send them to us. Sure, you can tweet at us or post them on Instagram using our hashtag RealTalkRJ. But the best thing to do is to send us an email, talk at ryanjesperson.com. You can find the link to talk to us on our homepage on our website. Label it Positive Reflections. How has Julie specifically impacted your life? We'll read some of these emails through this week, and I'm expecting a whole lot more coming up early next week with another edition of Positive Reflections presented by Kubi Energy. On tomorrow's show, we're going to continue our federal election coverage. Longtime strategist Tim Powers will join us, and Scott Gilmore, McLean's editor-at-large, will make a return to Real Talk to describe championing the evacuation of Afghani citizens out of Afghanistan. He's personally welcomed several to Canada. We'll hear his story firsthand. In the meantime, stay safe out there, friends, especially those of you that'll be counter-demonstrating outside hospitals across the country. And thanks for making time to talk with us today. We'll see you soon.
Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin, merchandise operations Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.